One Saturday afternoon, Doris Vitok and her friend were driving around Berkeley, California, just hanging out and running errands. And it was a beautiful day, blue skies, birds chirping, <laughs> dandelion fluff floating in the air with the rays of the sun. Adora and her friend had both graduated from Berkeley recently. She had entered the nonprofit world, and he got a job as a software engineer. Adora was looking outside the window when her friend turned to her. And he said, as we were going up this hill, that he had some news to share. And this is really rare because he's the kind of person where usually you have to ask, how are you? How is your day? Really prod to get more details. <laughs> okay. And he said, I found out that I have basically these kind of shares or like evaluation in this company. He said the company was offering him a buyout for the shares, you know, classic Silicon Valley stuff. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, and I kind of I didn't want to ask directly how much because mm. I thought that would be in poor form. But he volunteered. Oh, and it's in the range of four hundred thousand dollars. <gasps> so that's so I much said, money. Shit. I was like, dude, oh my God, that's, you can like buy a, you can't buy a house in the Bay Area, but you can like oh my God. buy a condo. She couldn't believe how casually he had dropped that news. Like, oh, just close to half a million dollar windfall. No big deal. What was going through your head when he said that? I felt like, okay, I'm being left behind, which is not a great gut reaction to somebody else's achievement. She started doing all these calculations in her head. I saw his earning potential, that kind of line imposed on the graph that I was visualizing in my head. And I saw it as like an arrow going up. And that was when I felt a real sense of, of envy there. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, she did not tell her friend that. Instead, she smiled and told a little white lie. I said, I'm happy for you. I'm really happy for you. And I said it because I was really trying to feel it. You know how sometimes you say things mm-hmm. before you really feel them because it's like, oh, maybe if I say it loudly enough or say it enough, it, it'll be true. This feeling is something Adora has gotten used to since living in the Bay Area. You know, being in this tech bubble where 21-year-olds can become overnight millionaires and some of her friends who are engineers easily start off making six-figure salaries. To be fair, Adora is doing well for herself. She makes $68,000 a year. But she can't help but feel like she's falling behind, especially when she compares herself to college friends who talk about buying homes soon or maybe retiring in their 40s or sometimes even their 30s. Did you ever worry that you might grow apart or because of the money or that it might change your relationship? I just don't know if we're going to see each other as often or or be as close. And I think to some extent that's the fear that everybody has. But it's magnified when there are big disparities in how much wealth people have. I'm Rima Khres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. So last week we talked about the complicated feelings that come from getting an inheritance. And this week, we're looking at another side of that, how coming into money can create distance with the people in your life, especially if y'all live in pretty different financial worlds. Jack Brunson is 27 and lives just outside of Nashville. And after he got an inheritance, he hid it from his friends, like this dirty little secret, until he just couldn't. 
Okay, in punk rock culture, there's this thing called Herberts. Have you any, no. any awareness? I don't know. So what like, that is. like a Herbert is like a normal looking guy that dresses, you know, kind of normal, but is into the whole thing and goes to shows and all that. My buddy uh, Greg called me Herbert Patient Zero recently, <laughs> and I kind of took it as a compliment. Like, like you don't have to try to be cool. Jack has been part of the punk scene since he was a teenager. He still rocks his leather jacket sometimes, but he's for sure a Herbert. He doesn't spike his hair or wear a bunch of studded bracelets. He's got a crew cut and is usually in cargo shorts and a band t-shirt. Sometimes his own band t-shirt. He's in five. I'm in a, a pop punk band called Big If True. Okay. Um, I'm in true. a garage surf kind of deal called These Heathens. Mm. Um, I'm in a thrash band um, called Toxic Culture. Okay. Um, and I am in a garage psych rock band called Mouth Reader here in the Nashville area. My favorite band of his is called Casual Sex. Not S-E-X, but like... Sex, S-E-C-T-S. The promo art is of a bunch of nuns. Anyway, Jack's entire adult life has been built around the punk scene. For many years, he and a bunch of his friends lived in a big punk house together. Posters and stickers covered every single inch of wall space, including the ceilings. And they'd throw house shows all the time, packing the basement with a bunch of sweaty people. I mean, we bonded over the music. We bonded over, you know like the weirdo arts and films and stuff like that that we liked. And then we bonded over being just like paycheck to paycheck broke. They shared this we're in it together, broke and young kind of camaraderie. There was definitely sort of like a, uh, oh, this guy's a poser because his parents paid for everything, you know, or like the kind of like uh, disdain of spoiled kids kind of mentality. Did you all ever feel like proud of, of being broke together? I know that sounds weird. I mean, there was uh, a certain amount of quote-unquote street cred that came with it, I suppose. But uh, I don't know if we were all ever proud because we were all, you know, also kind of stressed out about money. Jack had this grand plan to save up $10,000. To me at the time, ten grand seemed like it would fix any of life's problems. A sort of nest egg in case his car broke down or he ended up in the hospital. But it was tough saving up. Jack and his friends would party most nights and sometimes get in trouble with the police, usually misdemeanors like pot charges, maybe a DUI. And whenever someone got arrested, they'd pool all their money together to pay the bondsman. I maybe had $1,000 to my name, so giving up $100, $150 was like a big deal. It was Mm. like a tenth of my worldly assets, (laughs) you know? Yeah, but y'all did that for each other. Oh, yeah. Jack and his friends are in their late 20s now, and while they're still going to shows pretty regularly, things are a little more adult. Jack got married. His wife, Jamie, who's also in the punk scene, works at a nearby college. And then a few years ago, Jack took a few hundred bucks he'd saved up and started a business, fixing up broken guitars and turning them for a profit. So, like, we were pretty well on our way to, like, that 10 grand goal. And then in 2017, Jack's life changed dramatically. His dad passed away from a rare degenerative disease. 
And before he died, his dad rewrote his will and changed life insurance policies so that all of his assets went to Jack. He pulled me aside and he said, I'm rewriting, you know, um, all of this legal paperwork. Um, here's the, uh, like, combination to my safe. So I knew, I knew when he died that I was, you know, going to come and do a little bit of money. Yeah, it was more than just a bit of money. Two years ago, I was buying ice cream cones for 50 cents at a Burger King because my air conditioner was broken, and now I have, like, 450 grand in the bank. 450 grand. That's how much he got. I was, like, processing the grief of Dad just dying, and then they're like, oh, here's this money, and it's like, it's like you got plucked out of the life you were in and just dropped into a new one. Jack was so uncomfortable with the whole thing that he and his wife decided almost immediately to keep it a secret, even from their closest friends. It was always the addendum to like, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening. We can't tell anybody. This is a secret. But this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think people would judge you? Yeah, a little bit. You know, like, I come from, you know, musicians, punk musicians, artists, all that fairly left-leaning crowd. You know, there's a disdain for people with more money than sense. You know, yeah. like, I just didn't want people to see me as, like, that, like, you know, spoiled rich kid kind of thing, you know. More than that, Jack was proud of his do-it-yourself ethic. But now, all of a sudden, he had money that was just handed to him. I had worked really hard up until that point to build the life the way I had it. Mm. Um, and we had done that all on our own. And, like, I guess I just didn't want people to perceive that as all being, like, yeah. washed away by, like, you know, a life-saving amount of money, you know. He didn't want his friends to think differently of him because he had money now. And he didn't want the money to change how he saw himself. Yeah, I didn't want the money to become me, if that makes any sense. Like, I didn't want it to be, like, really any part of my identity. Mm. So... I wanted to be who I was without it or with it or, you know, whatever happened, you know. So, in a way, Jack started living a double life. He and his wife quietly used the money to make some upgrades. They bought a car, a used Ford Focus. They paid off Jamie's student loans, went on a few trips. Jack bought a new bass guitar and put some funds into his business. And it was at that point that Jack says he started to do something that is very unlike him. He started to lie. That's after the break. So the first white lie about the money was probably, I'm not getting a whole lot, as in uh, dad had just gone through a divorce and he didn't really have a lot when he died, so... I'm not, I'm not really getting a whole lot because there wasn't a whole lot to get. That was Jack's go-to line if anyone asked about his inheritance. He says just telling his friends, oh, by the way, I got almost half a million dollars after my dad died, would have felt crazy. He remembers one day he was watching a show with his best friend, Ethan, and one of the characters said they had $25,000. He, like, said something like, uh... I just don't know what I would do if I had that much money or anything. I was like, yeah, you know, me neither. <laughs> you know, like mm. It's a small lie, you know, just to fit in and feel close to his friend in the moment. For him and a lot of my other punk friends saying I came into like $450,000 would be like saying I came into a million bajillion dollars. After a while, though, the white lies started getting a little bigger. 
Jack eventually bought a new house for about $240,000. And he paid it all up front, no loan, no mortgage. And one day, his friends were over at his house. They were practicing, getting ready for a band tour. And we were, like, sitting there, like, stringing up our instruments. And the guitar player was like, man, this place is nice. What are you guys paying a mortgage? And I was like, well, uh, about nine fifty a month, you know. It's close to what our rent used to be, a little under 1000 And he was like, oh, cool. Jack had successfully managed to avoid telling anyone about the money for about two years. And he was planning to keep it that way. But that all changed one day in January. Jack, who has a business selling guitars, dropped off a big order at the UPS store. And there was kind of a guy just like sitting in a car, like at the corner of the parking lot. And so like when I pulled out, he pulled out behind me and I was like, okay, that's weird. And then of course he flipped his blue lights and uh, pulled me over. And uh, he said, are you Jack Brunson? I said, yes. He said, uh, I've got, you know, uh, a search warrant for you. Do you have anything in the car? Jack was really confused. But then it clicked. You know, I inherited my dad's Jeep when he died. So I was driving like a $60,000 Jeep. And they kind of saw all these packages coming in and out of my house because I run this guitar business, you know. Yeah. And so they kind of assumed the worst. So they thought you were a drug um, with- dealer. Oh, yeah. Jack says he later found out that someone snitched on him for having pot. So the cops thought he was some big-time dealer. When they searched his house, though, they just found a little personal stash, about two ounces of weed. But they also found some family heirlooms, his dad and grandfather's guns. So that meant even more charges. They found what they found, um, and they took me to jail. They charged Jack with a few things, including possession with intent to distribute and unlawful possession of a firearm. And and I, I was trying actually I was trying to call Jamie. Jamie's your wife. Yeah, Jamie's my wife. And I kept trying to call her and call her. She was at work and you know, it was coming up as a weird number on her phone, so she just kept blocking it, uh. you know. And so I ended up having to call Ethan. <laughs> Ethan, his best friend back from high school, who still had no idea about the money. When you call from the jail, it says, you're receiving a call from the Rutherford County mm-hmm. Correctional Facility, you know. And so he, of course, accepted it. And he was like, hello. And I was like, hey, man, it's me. And I'm in jail. I need you to get my wife and come bail me out. Do not go to a bail bondsman. Just go get Jamie and come to the jail. <laughs> Jack knew that Ethan's first instinct would have been to go to a bail bondsman. It's what they'd always done. But instead, he helped him get in touch with his wife, Jamie, who paid the full bail. How much? Uh, it was like 19 grand. Wait, $19,000? Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah um, the felony limit on pot here in Tennessee is uh, a half ounce. After eight hours in jail, Jack was released. And of course, Ethan was curious about where the money came from. And so, like, I kind of had to, like, skirt around the, like, why. You know, I was like, well, we just had money saved up for the house. So, yeah, Jack didn't actually tell him. He says he'd feel guilty sharing just how much money he has. Because he knows Ethan's not doing as well. It's weird to be like, hey, I have all this money. I'm sorry that you're broke. (laughs) Yeah. We've made such a huge, weird societal thing about money. And also, 
It's sort of a point of tension when you're doing well and, and someone else is struggling. Even though Ethan's like family to him, it's always easier to talk about the things in our lives with people who can relate. It's why shortly after the whole jail drama, to get some advice, Jack hit up his friend Corey, someone a bit older who also came out of the punk scene, but Jack says has his financial shit together. I told him what happened and I said, hey, I really would like, would like a friend to talk. And I told him, I said, you know, hey, I'm coming clean. Like, this is, this is what happened when my dad died. I came into this amount of money and like, this is how I could afford the bail and all this. Like, I can buy any lawyer I need to, all this kind of stuff. What should I do? Jack was nervous about sharing, but he needed someone to talk to. And he thought Corey, of all people, wouldn't judge. Corey's always, I mean, not had money, like, to that extent, but, like, Corey's always had, you know, savings, and he bought his house and all that kind of stuff. So, like, I definitely felt good to tell him and just be like, come clean. And I don't think we've talked about it since. Jack knows there's a possibility that some of his friends will hear him on this podcast. So, sort of in preparation, he built up the courage to tell another close friend recently, his buddy Mark. They play basketball together, and after a recent scrimmage, they decided to walk some laps. You know that, like, going to the principal anxiety that you get? Like, you're sitting in the principal's office anxiety? Mm. Like, I don't know why I got that sort of, like, Mm. up to telling him, you know? But eventually, he spit it out. He kind of stood there stunned for a minute, and then he was like, well, we all kind of assumed you got something. (laughs) Didn't really phase Mark, but he did say... You know, you still have to recognize your privilege as far as, like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, dude, I do, like... If, if I hadn't had that money, I would be in jail right now. They talked about it for a few more minutes and then just moved on. His friend didn't really make a big deal out of it. Still, Jack can't help but feel guilty about the money and that he's out of step with his friends. I have friends that are struggling to, like, pay their rent and get their electric bill in on time. And I was able to, like, buy a house and start a business and you know, like, do all of these things that, you know, other people won't be able to think about doing for 15, 20, 30 years. That's why it's harder for Jack to come clean to certain people, like his best friend Ethan. He told me that he really wanted to do it before this episode aired. So I called him up the other day to see if he had gone through with it. Hello? Hello, Jack. It's Rima. I caught him on his lunch break eating a home-prepped meal of imitation chicken marsala. I'm wondering, have you, like, did you tell Ethan? Um, no. Yeah, there just was, like, no good opportunity to. Jack told me he had planned to tell Ethan at this party, but couldn't get a private moment. Then they were hanging out at another point, but it always felt like there was someone around. But even if they did find a time, Jack says he doesn't know where he'd start. Like, how do I even bring it up? And Okay, do you want to um, practice? I'm Ethan. I mean, I'm probably just going to cut straight to the point and pull the Band-Aid as fast as possible and be like, hey, when my dad died, I inherited like $450,000. How do you think like, he'll react? I can almost guarantee you that the first thing out of his mouth will either be, holy shit, holy fucking shit, <laughs> something like that, something like that. And he says, what did you do with the money? I kind of explain it, and that's sort of the end of it. So... I was confused. If that's all Jack was expecting to happen, I figured there had to be more to all of this. Do you think part of it is, like, you're just afraid that 
it would create some distance between you and your friends. You know, like if you're struggling financially, you like at least take comfort in the fact that like you have friends who are kind of in the same boat as you, you know, and like, you know, like the boat might be like sinking, but at least y'all are in it together. And I wonder if like part of it is just like you kind of left the boat, you know? I think he might already kind of feel that way. I don't want to say we've like grown apart because I think we're still just as good of friends as we were, you know, in high school. It's just that life has taken us in different directions. So it's hard to say, like, did the money cause the divergence or would this have just happened anyway? But I kind of think we were just headed that direction. Like, he wanted to go deeper into the punk hole and I wanted to, you know, stay close by, but still, you know, you know, not sweat it as much. I think that's pretty normal. Growing up, especially in high school, you and your friends are on this seemingly level playing field. Then as we get older, people just have different priorities and different interests. And relationships like Jack and Ethan's, they change. We both went in, like, completely different adult directions that, like, we don't hang out interpersonally as much as we used to. And so whether we want to recognize it or not, money is an easy marker that things are different now. It's something you can latch on to. Still, Jack says he's looking forward to the day when he can sit down, look at his best friend in the eye, and just tell him. I really, really do not like to keep secrets or yeah. like, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a very good bullshitter. Well, he hasn't been doing too bad. get where Jack is coming from. I mean, I've definitely told white lies myself around how much my rent costs or how much money I make. And I'm curious to hear your white lies, the things you've said that maybe aren't exactly true, but maybe you said to fit in or to make other people feel comfortable. Like maybe you hid your debt from someone you were dating or told your friends you already ate to avoid eating at a fancy restaurant. Or maybe you lied to your employer about your previous salary so you could make more money. Whether they're big or super trivial, hit me up with your white lies. You can shoot me a note at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. This is Uncomfortable is produced by me, Lima Face, Haley Hirschman, and Peter Bellinon Rosen. Megan Dietry is our senior producer. Charlton Thorpe is our technical director. Editing by Sarah Kramer. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Una Danish is our intern. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right. Catch y'all next week.